This podcast is sponsored by Gravity Fit. We all want to swing it like a tour pro, right? So we're working on our golf swings. We're trying to improve our contact and directional control. And I'll say one of the biggest things, caveat there, is while reducing pain and discomfort caused by poor movement in the golf swing. And around here, we like things like science-based, tour-proven, simple to use. Gravity Fit checks those boxes. If you haven't tried it out, it's feedback training equipment that can help you with your golf swing, your posture, spine, and joint health. I actually have it in my office and use it daily just to help me bring awareness to my posture and avoid back and neck pain while sitting working for long periods of time. I know that that might seem strange here, but it's been super helpful. And then I take it to the range and help train my setup and movement patterns while doing some practice there. Can't recommend this enough. Like I said, it's in my office. I use it on a regular basis. Learn more at gravityfit.com slash golf. Use the coupon code GSL. Gravity Fit, stronger, longer, sweeter. You are listening to the Golf Science Lab podcast. My name is Cordy Walker, and I'm on a mission to figure out how to improve the way that we learn and get better at golf. I've been able to travel all over the world talking with leaders in the industry, from instructors to researchers to golfers themselves, learning how they're getting better at golf and what that means for you. Welcome back to the Golf Science Lab podcast, and we are back with another story from our How to Be a Tour Pro series. Last week, we had on Willie Wilcox telling his story. Great feedback and conversations that started from that on Twitter and Instagram. Make sure to, to join those conversations if you're not and see what everyone's saying about that. Really good stuff. And now this week, we're going to jump generations and hear from David Ogren. David played on the PGA Tour from 1983 to 2000, and he started in over 500 tournaments. That is a ton of golf. And after playing for a living, he now teaches and coaches in San Antonio at his own academy. And we're going to cover everything in here from, you know, getting started as a junior golfer, the really tough transition for him from junior golf to college golf, uh, you know, how he overcame a, a slump in his career. He had a span of about three years there in his career where he really, you know, didn't do well. And we then kind of wrap it up as him as a coach and a teacher now, what he sees is most important for all of us. Before we get to that, though, if you have not signed up for the Golf Science Lab Insider Club, you are missing out. We've just reorganized all of our free resources into this one portal. So you sign up and you can see everything. You can stay up to date on everything that we have going on and get special offers and all that good stuff. GolfScienceLab.com slash insider, completely free. Check it out. All right, let's get to the show. So take me back. Where were you born? Where did you grow up? Well, Cordy, I grew up in Waukegan, Illinois, which is the north suburbs of Chicago. And I had a classic talent code experience, uh, if you go back to Daniel Coyle's book, in that my mom was elected to the park district in Waukegan back in the mid-60s when I was about seven years old. And at that time, one of the perks was the family got to play golf at Bonnie Brook Golf Course in Waukegan. And so I had an unlimited free run, basically, at golf from the time I was seven to the time I was 16, and I pretty much took advantage of it. I played a lot of golf. When I wasn't playing, I'd caddy for my dad on the weekends, and eventually I went over to caddy at Glen Flora Country Club, and eventually they allowed me to come out and play with the members uh, pretty much at will. So I had a tremendous uh, break as a kid having uh, almost unlimited access to a golf course. 
I remember my dad had a bag boy golf cart and he had a big leather golf bag. We always had Wilson golf clubs. We'd go out to the golf course and it was a very long walk. This is well before any kind of modified tees. And so my parents did what was logical. They had me tee off from the Reds and just uh, had to keep up. I have very early memories of going to the practice facility. And at Bonnybrook, we did not have a driving range, but we had a shag field. So I have early memories of going out with my dad to hit balls. And he'd hit and I'd hit. And we'd go out there with the bag shag and pick them up, walk back up the hill. And I, like, so I started catting pretty young. And there was a good amateur tournament at the golf course. And my dad would play every year. And it was a big deal. It was the kind of deal where in the old days you'd see uh, – gentlemen in white shirts hanging on the rail watching everybody play you know you hear the stories about like the san francisco amateur having ten thousand people show up well that was kind of like what it was at bonniebrook in the lake county amateur you did um you know you get 120 130 people watching him finish it was a very romantic kind of time golf was just part of life for david it was part of his family it was a part of their community it was part of their neighborhood and you can hear in David's voice how important this was just for the culture that he grew up in and, and what they did for fun, what they did on the weekends, what they did with friends. And he just played a ton of golf. So school would always get out like the first week of June. And then we'd go back to first week of September. So during the summertime, when dad got home from work, he'd take me to the golf course. We'd go to the golf course and do something, play, practice, whatever. And then, of course, when I was in school, then after school, they would take me to the golf course. A little bit later on, junior high, you know, when you get to be uh, seventh grade or so, my beautiful yellow Schwinn bike and I became very good at getting to the golf course. And uh, so I'd go to the golf course after uh, school and do what I could do. And in the summertime, I was just there all day. I remember uh, about 12 years old, I started establishing a handicap. And I established my first handicap was around 15 or 16 or something. And by the end of the summer, it was down to like nine or eight. And then the next year, I think I played something like 300 rounds. I recorded 300 rounds on a handicap card one summer. And that was the summer I ended up going from wherever I was to better than zero, like when I was 14 years old. It was uh, just a volume thing. And when you think about summers up north, I mean, you only have a couple hundred days. And I played more than a, more than a, round, of day, a round a day that one summer. When we think about getting good at golf, a lot of us think about the driving range. And the reality is the driving range is kind of something new. And this was before my time and then maybe yours as well. But, you know, there was a point where you couldn't just blast a bunch of range balls, you know, get the largest bucket possible, hit all day long and have the cart guys out there just picking them up. It used to be different and maybe a little better if you wanted to improve the way that you hit the golf ball. Practice field was to the right of the first hole and so i'd get there and i'd have my shag bag and i'd I'd hit a whole bunch of wedges from the top of the hill down to the bottom hill pick them up then i'd go across the creek and then go to uh, an area where you could hit drivers now you're always sharing this with other learners of the game so you got your little titleists or wilson staffs or whatever kind of balls you have you catch marked up with your little initials on it with magic marker but you got really good at hitting them in small piles because you didn't want to chase them all over the place Something that actually, Cordy, I think is a little bit lost in today's game is that the kids come to the driving range, they knock it all the hell over the place, and they don't have to go pick them up. But when I practiced as a boy, 
I practiced in such a way that I had to hit them in a small pile. So I'd either hit 20 in a small pile and go pick them up, or I'd hit 20 in a small pile, change clubs, and hit 20 in a small pile, change clubs, and then go pick them up. And shag range where you have to pick up your own balls is a very unique thing. And you just don't see it happen much anymore. So hitting range balls, and I'm doing air quotes there, was different, right? The demands of hitting shots on the range when David was doing that were very different than the demands of a range today. Now, this was important, but David mentioned that he was playing 27 to 36 holes a day, maybe spending an hour on the range. So he was spending the vast majority of his time on the course. And the other aspects you know, of being on that course is who you are on the course with. Are you competing? Who's around you? And what does that look like? I don't ever remember being bad, Gordy. How's that? <laughs> I started, um, you know, just the, the early days with mom and dad. I mean, I don't remember ever being bad at golf. I could hit the ball. I could putt the ball. I could chip the ball. And I did most of it up until 12 years old with a genuine baseball grip, not even a 10-finger grip. And it wasn't until 12 years old that I had any instruction at all other than just watching my dad and his guys hit. Do you think it's something you were born with or is it something that you developed? Yes. How's that? It's both, Gordy. I, I had pretty good eye-hand coordination. Last time I went to a batting cage, I got in the 80 mile an hour machine, was able to hit the ball. So I, I think that's pretty good. I'm 60 years old. I can still hit a baseball. So I have that eye-hand coordination, especially the bat-ball eye-hand coordination. I can throw. I can't run or swim, but that just keeps me out of the triathlon. But then my dad being an avid golfer and our town being an avid golf town also helped. I just grew up in that culture of golf, public course golf. And it, uh, you know, when I hear that golf is an elitist game, I scratch my head because that's not my experience at all. At nine years old, I was starting to compete against the older kids. And when I was a seventh grader, I started to play matches against the high school kids and might lose only because they could reach the greens in two and I couldn't. But I would tell them in seventh, eighth grade, I'm going to win the state high school championship as a freshman. So Illinois is a pretty competitive state. And as a freshman in high school, I finished second in the state high school championship behind a guy named Jerry Vitovic, who became a really good friend of mine. But, um, you know, I was competing against high school kids when I was in junior high, and they were the ones that were better. Of my peer group, my absolute age group, I was the better player of the bunch. But we were all pretty good sticks, and we all had a lot of fun playing golf. So he was naturally talented at golf. He was good. He never remembers really being bad at golf. He was surrounded by golf. His parents played golf and encouraged it and supported it. Their neighborhood and their community played golf, and that was their community. And David had friends his age and kids his age who loved to play golf as well. I mean, this is just a, a phenomenal environment if you want to get really, really, really good at golf. The motivation was I was good at something. I was good at this thing called golf, and the motivation was always let's see how good I could be at this. And if you look at my tour record, for example, it's going to say 408 or 406 tournaments before I actually won, which is not a record, but it's still, you know, a long time before I actually have an official victory on my, on my resume. And not any of those times was money, particularly a motivation or winning, particularly a motivation. 
I just had this perspective. Let's, let's keep playing, see how good you can be, and and let's um, you know, let's just 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 keep going, keep playing, see how good you can be at this. So his motivation was to get better, to always be improving, and always trying to push a little bit farther. And he, you know, from an early age, had this desire of, hey, I want to play golf for a living. I want to be a pro. If mom and dad could speak, they'd probably tell you that uh, I mentioned that I want to be a professional golfer. And even our home professionals at that time, in a different era where they ran everything, and it was such a person-to-person business, were very romantic and very um, very cool guys to hang around. And, and we had a couple of three guys in our area that would go play the Caribbean tour or go play the winter tour, as it were. And they'd come back and tell stories. And I've always found that very fascinating. When I was a boy, TBS Golf Classic was on. uh, Shell's Wonderful World of Golf was on. uh, CBS was televising golf. And I can distinctly remember uh, programs like the Jackie Gleason Inverary Classic coming on. Even our local sports announcers on the CBS station in, in Chicago always had a golf segment. The sportscaster's name was Bruce Roberts, and he used to do a segment on golf every Sunday and always included somebody making this giant putt. And he had a, a, a call phrase that says, this one has eyes. And so eventually, you know, he'd run this clip and he'd go, this one has and this one, everybody in the studio would yell, has eyes. And uh, you remember these things and, and just visuals of putts going in. And I would watch Bing Crosby on television. I'd watch the Masters on television. Uh, I was watching what Arnie and Jack, Julius Boros, and then just a little bit later, just before I got into college, there was some kid named Tom Watson that started playing good. And I was watching him. And it was just uh, a constant thing. Remember, in the wintertime, we're not necessarily outside. So, I mean, February, you're watching golf on TV. Every now and then, somebody would pop up a net or a tarp in a gym and you'd go do it. But, you know, it was just, uh, again, so immersed in it that uh, it was something I was always looking for. So I thought it was very romantic. I thought it was a very good idea. And so I set about being good. I mean, I, I won my tournament at nine and then I broke 70 for the first time in a tournament when I was 15, and I got a scholarship to AM and I went to Texas A&M, played golf, and I got three times third-team All-American, and then I turned pro, and it took me like four times to get on tour, then I got on tour, then I stayed on tour, and I just kept trying to take it as far as I could, as long as I could. So a couple times now, we've actually talked about his parents, how they played a a really a large part in his upbringing in golf from getting him out there in the very beginning to encouraging it to having to be caddy for his father at tournaments that he was playing in. And his father's love for, for golf was really a, you know, a big reason that got David out there. He had a big impact on supporting him as well during these really important developmental years. He, um, he really uh, made sure he probably sacrificed to get myself and my sisters out on the golf course and into playing tournaments because he didn't ever make a, a lot of money or anything. Mom too, but I never remember wanting for anything. Again, one of the things that he 
almost never said no. I don't ever remember him saying no about going to the golf course. And I don't remember a tournament that I played in that I couldn't get to. I qualified for two U.S. juniors. I qualified for one insurance youth classic, Big Eye classic. I qualified for six out of seven public links championships starting when I was 16 years old. And I don't ever remember not being able to go because of finances or money. And I know he didn't make a lot of money, you know, being a steelworker. I think his top paycheck ever was like $27,500 as a steelworker, you know, for a year. But um, uh, that's one thing he did right. Another thing he did right was he never really criticized me for a bad shot. He would criticize me for some bad behavior or throwing a club or getting lazy or something. But he never criticized me directly for uh, hitting a hitting one in the water or you know three putting or anything like that. There was none, none of any of that. And then we partnered up enough times in in the the adult money games where you know it was striving together. One question that I asked along the way here was, you know, what struggles do you remember? Were there any hard things that you had to overcome? during this period in your life. And David had a very specific story, which I thought was, was funny to, to recount here that he remembered this, you know, so long ago, but remembers fighting through this and overcoming this and moving on and continuing. And it wasn't something that, that stopped him. And I thought this was a really good anecdote to plug in here. I lost the match to Steve Brown. I was dormy. I was dormy five and lost the match. And I remember my dad was, that's probably one of the only time my dad was ever mad at me. And he says, David, when you get him down, step on him. So I was five up with five to play and I lost the match. I lost six straight holes. And that was just really strange, which was kind of funny because a number of years later, I was at the North and South Amateur and I was three down with four to play. And I won the last four holes and the guy beat kind of I just did the fleeting memory of having had it done to me, helped me get out of that hole. So that was a failure early. I lost my temper one time and dad basically told me, you throw a club again and I'll pull you off the golf course. And I also withdrew from a tournament in a fit of uh, disgust. And my dad told me, says, he says, you can't withdraw from a tournament without my permission. And so since he's died, except for dire illness, I haven't withdrawn from a golf tournament. So when we look at this young, early developmental stages, there's obviously instruction of some kind, right? And it's different for everybody. So we, we've got to dive in here. What was the role of golf instruction? What was kind of your instruction experience? Well, this is a great question because my first instructor was a great gentleman professional by the name of Don Kennedy. Don Kennedy worked at Deer Path Country Club in Lake Forest, a couple of towns down from Waukegan. And Don was a good friend of my dad. And so the first lesson I took from Don was grip, stance, posture, and ball position. He changed me from a baseball grip to an overlap Varden grip with the V's pointed over my right shoulder. Had me take a shoulder with stance and the butt end of the club pointed at my left pocket. And the ball position was a little bit center for irons and left heel for woods. And the hour lesson went by and he said, you've got it, go play. That was my first lesson. Second lesson is a year later, I had the shanks and I came by and he gave me the same lesson as the first one. He said, aim straight, hit straight. 
<laughs> those are the two first lessons I had. We had some guys in town teaching, and I can remember that we had a teacher in town that would teach a lot, and they would go down the practice tee, and they'd work on grip and stance and posture and fundamentals all the time. And I can remember uh, the teacher yelling at me one day, says, you're never going to get good playing all that golf. And I thought that was just really curious to me because the kids that he was teaching always never seemed to get there. They're always working on something. Nonetheless, I had two lessons up until the time I went off to college. I had two lessons in my entire childhood up until the time I went to college. The mindset was more like, how can I lower my handicap? I watched my handicap, you know, and, and, and sometimes you see questions on the forums going, how do we know when you're getting better? And I go, what's your handicap? It's like nobody keeps a handicap anymore. It's a standard traditional handicap card was my teacher. So as a junior, he did really, really well. It was this fantastic environment with supportive parents and friends and community. And the next step was heading to college. It's one of the two big transitions that every golfer has to take, going from a junior golfer to a college golfer and from a college golfer to a professional golfer. I wasn't super recruited, but I had enough chances. I could have gone to Eastern Kentucky, and the coach that was recruiting me there was Jim Suddy, which would have been interesting. I could have gone to Indiana University, University of Indiana there in Bloomington. I chose Texas A&M. And I chose Texas A&M because it was the best school for the South. I had no idea about the Southwest Conference. I had no idea about the University of Texas. I had no idea about anything Texas. It was just the best school for the South. I got here because Coach Bob Ellis, who's now a NCAA uh, College Golf Hall of Fame coach, his brother was a former state amateur champion in Illinois and a friend of my dad's. And so I got recruited word of mouth. Came down to A&M, loved it, got down here, and promptly, totally fell on my face my first semester in college. Classic blunder of just not being ready for that change. Lucky to pass classes, didn't play very good golf. Got that straightened out a little. I got the, that was sort of a wake-up call. And after that, the last three and a half years was really no problem. If you look back at the history, when I went to college in the fall of 1976, the national drinking age was 18. And I discovered Coors. And I discovered the Dixie Chicken. And I just didn't... I, and I also had a weird, actually a weird thing happen. The CLEP test. I clept out of English and I clept out of my... I clept out of my chemistry. First semester chemistry. I said, great, I get three credits all right off the bat. And I walk into chemistry 102, second semester chemistry, right in the middle of chapter 12. I'm starting in the middle of the book at college chemistry. And man, I had to fight for a D in that class. I got my D, I passed the class. But, you know, by accident, I made it harder myself not uh, actually just taking chemistry 101. So I made a D in that class and I struggled in another class, but I got, I, I got through it. I didn't, I didn't flunk anything. It just it wasn't very good. And the golf kind of shocked me. 
I had come on a recruiting trip in February and the weather had been very nice when in February and the greens had been overseeded. Everything had been overseeded. And I got there in August and it's 155 degrees with about 3000% humidity. And the courses just look like crap. It just gnarly Bermuda and it just looks terrible. And I had a horrendous, just a horrendous semester putting. And uh, I never had that thought. I'm not that I'm not good enough. I never had that thought because I was we had a couple of good seniors at play. And, uh, you know, I, I I could hang with them. So finally, like at the end of my first semester, I said, OK, this is enough. I've got to come up with a system and learn how to putt. And that's when I began pacing off putts. I remember going to the square putting green at um, the college course that we had at A&M and pacing off 17 steps. Okay, this is 50 feet from the hole. How hard do I have to hit it? And I hit it and I started putting until I could lag it up there pretty close. And then did that, you know, for all the different distances. And immediately my putting on Bermuda got better. And then in the spring, I played pretty good. I played pretty good. And we got to nationals. And I finished 13th in Nationals at Seven Oaks up there in, um, in northern New York, where Colgate hosted. So I, mean, I went from being really bad as a first semester to uh, being in the top 13 at, um, at the NCAA. At Texas A&M, I was an honorable mention All-American my freshman year, and I made third team. So I got four All-American plaques. So I was always in the mix with everybody. But then at that time, I'm playing with a lot of really good players. I'm playing with Payne Stewart. I'm playing with Phil Blackmark. I'm playing with Hal Sutton. On my own team, we had like five different guys at least get a cup of coffee on the tour. Then, you know, you go across regions and uh, Gary Hallberg's at Wake Forest and... Larry Rinker's at uh, Florida, and you go out west, and USC is loaded, and, and I'm hanging with all these guys. I'm at Division One, hanging with all these guys all the time. I only won three tournaments in college. I won one each of my last three years in college, but I won a big one in Texas where everybody was there, including a kid from Minnesota that came down to the University of Minnesota, Tommy Lehman. So, you know, I won one of those, and it was just a logical progression to me. I'm hanging with these guys. I can play with them. We all know each other. And so that in 1980, when I get done with my eligibility, I went one extra semester to get my degree. And during that extra semester is when I played my first Q school. And what happened there? I had to go to the local stage, the first stage. So I went up to Chicago where I was comfortable and I cruised right through the first three rounds, like 70, 71, 70 or something. And then in the fourth round, I shot 77 and I missed. And I went, huh, that was interesting. So then that leads me into 1981. So I'm, I'm done with college. I get my college degree in 1981. I played the, all the mini tours in the United States. I went to the NGA. I chose California, not Florida. The Florida had Space Coast and California had NGA. So you got to NGA. Now you're playing with a bunch of old pros and young pros. And the dominating players on the NGA at that time were Ray Arino and Tom Seekman. And we're playing out in San Diego, and I'm playing and I'm playing and I'm playing. 
And uh, then we go on the Midwest tour where you play the Kansas Open, uh, North Dakota Open, Oklahoma Open, and I went home and played the Illinois Open and stuff like that. In the spring, they had the last spring qualifying school of 80, 81, and I missed. And then I missed the qualifying school in the fall of uh, 81 as well. And what I did then was like, oh, I'm going to up my competition. So I went overseas, scraped together some money, went to South Africa, Asia, and Europe on a big worldwide tour. Five in South Africa, 10 in Asia, and 13 in Europe. And uh, I learned something in South Africa. I went miscut, miscut fifth, miscut 20th, and I made money. And then I went to Asia, I went miscut, miscut, lost in a playoff, and I made money. And so all of a sudden I realized I'm, as a professional, you know, when you have an opportunity, you got you to gotta take it. Now, I'm looking back and saying I learned that lesson, but my one big regret, if you ask me, my one big regret on the PGA Tour is not recognizing when I had the opportunity sometimes. One of the fascinating things is the longevity of David's career on the PGA Tour. He won the Texas Open, which was, you know, the biggest win. It was a home event for him. He beat Jay Haas by one shot and Tiger Woods by two shots. And it was this this huge uh, moment for him. But there's a lot of other things that happened along the way during all those years that he was out there on tour. I think it's eventually won by Fred Couples, but it's a five-way playoff. And Fred Couples and T.C. Chen were in the final group, and they finished like 45 minutes behind everybody else. Really strange circumstance, right? Dr. Gil Morgan. And we were an hour and 30 minutes in front of the leaders, and Gil just kept grinding out this round, ended up shooting a 200 par 69 or 300 par 69, and he got into the playoff at like one under par or something. And I played with him that day. And I didn't recognize that was an opportunity. A couple years later, 85, I lost a playoff to Hell Sutton at Memphis. And I replay that tournament a bunch in my brain. And I'm trying to figure out what I could have done differently to have won that tournament. I can't find a single solitary thing I could have done differently there. But I had three or four other instances where I got right up on the precipice of being in contention. And for whatever reason, didn't pull it off. And it wasn't until much later in my career, 93, 94, 95, 96, after I'd had a session with um, and started being mentored by Chuck Hogan, that it occurred to me that there's such a thing as mindset that helps you overcome that stuff. And what needed to change in your mindset? I will admit to being a scoreboard watcher. I had to learn to stay more present, more focused on what I'm doing right here, right now, is what I have to do. And so when I eventually won the Texas Open here, the only year Tiger played here, even though I had a disaster right in the middle of the final round, being able to just get back and play that next shot well, and the next shot well, and then play this putt well, and learn to not worry about where you are in the rankings at any given time. I coach so many kids who tell me, coach, coach, uh, you know, I, you know, I had them. I had him, and then and then I bogeyed a couple holes. I made a double bogey, and I said, "You had who? No, you're looking at the wrong thing." But coach, I could have beaten him, and and I see it all. I hear it all the time from parents. Oh, my girl's better than that girl. Like maybe, right? I mean, hit the next shot well. So that was something that happened to me. Is that was another turning point? Is 
you know, fast forwarding into my second half of my career, coming out of a deep slump and hiring Chuck Hogan was one of the things that really helped. Along the way, David went down the path of trying to improve his golf swing. He knew a friend who went to this particular instructor and he thought that maybe that could help him and get him where he wanted to go. Uh, however, there was a setback and, and he had you know some really tough years and, and there was this kind of the slump in his career where it took a lot of hard work to get back. I've been working with an instructor whose solution to every problem was round the swing out more, flatten the shaft more. Round the swing out more, flatten the shaft more. And I got a serious case of the rights with the driver. My wife called them scuds because that was back during the one golf war. <laughs> he kept hitting scuds out the right field. I hit it in the front yard one day at, at um, Bob Hope on the 10th tee at the uh, Palmer course. I mean, I hit it so far right. It was like an amazing shot how far right I hit it. And so to get out of that, I remember I had a, I had a long discussion with Fran Pirazzolo. I wasn't even a client of his. It was just a, a talk like this. And I really made a mountain out of the failures and so on and so forth. But it was Jim Suddy who mechanically got me out of it. I developed a bad swing flaw. I mean, it, it just... It happened because I was working on a golf swing and I just overbaked that golf swing and it wasn't it wasn't very good and, and Doc Suddy got me out of it. Um got me out of it with a lot of hard work. I I saw Doc's uh, Pat McGowan brought me down to um Pine Needles and he said, David, you gotta work with Doc and he'll get you straightened out. And so I went to work with Doc. This would have been ninety two. And we worked for six days before I hit a good golf shot. Not six lessons, six days. And that's, uh, that was a lot of time with Doc on the range, really hitting crappy golf shots. I went in there and I played a tournament on Hogan Tour event in the middle of Georgia, and I hit like seven balls out of bounds, right? Yeah. So, I mean, I, this is where I struggle now. Now now I'm beginning to you know worry about myself. And I can remember the place, the time, and the shot that that turned around. I am using all my guile and wit to even begin to try to make the cut at uh, the Hogan Tour event at Highland Springs out in, in Springfield, Missouri. Great golf course. And the 18th hole has got an island green, and it's a reachable par five if you can hit a good drive. And I'm still hitting all kinds of crappy shots. And I got up on the tee, and I made this swing. It's exactly what I've been trying to do for eight weeks. And this ball rockets right down the middle of the fairway. I get down to the forward, to the island green, make the same swing. The thing rockets right in the middle of the green, and I two-put, and I make the cut. I mean, I've hit zero good shots in 35 holes, and I hit two good shots, and it was like a big aha moment. And from that time to today, the golf swing has been on this track. So... That was another one of those little aha things, those big turnarounds, those seminal moments where something really cool happens. You go, whoa, that was cool. And he did bounce back. He, he bounced back after this and he won the Texas Open after this and had two of his best seasons of his career after this, this slump. I played really well all the way up until the time that I hurt my knee. I had meniscus damage in a knee and uh, that was 98. And I played the last six or seven or eight tournaments with a 
torn meniscus in my knee and it hurt like hell. And I made six cuts. And then I made this decision. I was in the 126 to 150 category. I made this decision to get operated on instead of going to Q school. Well, 99 was the year that we had the big Ryder Cup brouhaha at Brookline. And everybody played every week. Everybody wanted on the team. And so that was the year the 126 to 150 category played the fewest tournaments ever. And I only got to play 19 tournaments. I made like 11 cuts or something. And, and then I never gained, regained full status after that. And um, at just uh, 41 years or 42 years old or something, that happens. I love that there's that, that moment again here in your story where, you know, you're really fighting hard when your swing was there. You just weren't hitting it well, right? Whatever it was, it was just going right. And you had to find it. And then you had them, you know, you struggled, like you said, on the range, six days, you know, you didn't hit a good shot. And then you work, 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 and, and you get to that place where you hit those two in a row. And then, you know, you have those best years of your career after that. I think that's, that's really cool. Absolutely. It's really cool. And, you know, I've actually been with other players when they've had that moment. I was playing with Woody Blackburn, Woody Blackburn. It's just scuffling in the Hawaiian Open. He hits out of bounds on the uh, sixth hole. And then the next drive, he just kills it. And he gets this really weird look on his face. And he plays beautifully the last 12 holes of that round. He wins the next week in San Diego. It's like he's terrible. And all of a sudden, he hits this one drive. And he kind of gets that look on his face and go, and he wins the next week. I was playing with Lauren Roberts, a really good friend of mine. And he scuffles, scuffles, scuffles. And he's got a chance to make the top 10. And he pulls the drive into the water on the 18th hole at uh, BC Open, takes his drop, knocks a six iron up there, makes the 15-footer for par. And he went on from there to win, what, six or eight times on the tour. So I've been there a couple times. And, it, and it's really cool when it happens. It's really cool when it happens. You can see it happening all the time with kids. It's one of the most gratifying things coaching kids is you get the text from the kid or the parent, hey, coach, I shot 42 and I won. So it's like, cool. <laughs> you know, I broke a hundred. Cool. There are those moments. And what do you call that moment? Like, what do you label that as? Or, or what do you describe that as? Capital Y-E-S with the exclamation part. Yes. Those are yes moments. That's why we play the game, Cordy. That, that's, you know, you're a researcher, right? And so, you know, you're looking, you're looking, you're looking. All of a sudden you see an idea that's different, but makes so much sense. Just in the last four or five years, you know, the work that our buddy Michael Hebron's done and then a bunch of us have adopted. What's not what are you going to do better? It's what you can do different. The aha moment of the different of the mindset between those two items is just staggering. Staggering when you tell somebody that shot you hit's not a bad shot. That's not unwanted. That's just unworkable. It wasn't the solution you wanted for this particular one. Take a look at that one. You might need that one someday. Now let's, you know, what are we going to do different on the next one? Just the aha of that process is amazing. We're going to end this episode with a few messages. First off, his message to parents. How do you help your child develop and give them the best opportunity possible to play golf for a living? I don't remember ever noticing anything negative about my father. And so my father, again, is a, a archetype of what 
uh, Lennon Peel would call the golf parent of the future. He was the golf parent of the future back in the 60s and the 70s. Uh, he was there, never got disgusted, never showed, never interfered. When we went to these two sessions with Don Kennedy, dad just stayed up at the restaurant and just kind of hung out and uh, didn't interfere. So the second thing would be it's a process. Golf's a game. It's not work. It better be fun. And I see coach, dad, dad coach. We have one little girl that goes around our part three and, and she hits a bad shot. And I, and I see dad give, him that, give her that look and it's like, no, 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 no. Don't, don't, don't do that. That's not bad. That's just, it just is. That's golf. Nobody hits it like Iron Byron. Iron Byron doesn't hit it like Iron Byron. <laughs> right? So that's one of those messages. It's a long process. It's a journey. What you shoot today has no bearing. You won't remember what you shot today 10 years ago. It's going to have no effect where you're going to be. Our second message is to golf instructors. How do you best help that junior golfer, that student who wants to play pro golf? How do you help them develop and be the best that they can be? Too much information. It's one of the hardest things that I do is try not to give too much information. That's why I love the essential playing skills the way Lynn and Pia laid them out. Because you can talk through them and it's not TMI. You know, you can work on balance for an entire session and other little things come up. But, you know, got force plates and lag and grip pressure and alpha rotation and, you know, club head speed, club head launch angle and dynamic loft. You got all these metrics. They all have use, but if there's a one-on-one session going, deal with one thing, maybe two, go pretty further than that. And it's a long process. I'm actually kind of getting to coach coaches, and my number one thing is make them like the game. Don't make them hate the game. Those messages are so wise, you know, coming from someone who's had so much experience playing on the PGA Tour, winning, being around so many different people who have really succeeded at the highest level. He can, you know, kind of look at his experience as a player, look at his experience as a junior golfer, look at now his experience as a coach and instructor, and just so much to offer here in this this story and in this interview with David Ogren. Appreciate your time. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to say thank you to him on Twitter or Facebook. Head over to his website. If you are in the, the San Antonio area, could not recommend enough that you go see him, get a lesson, spend some time with him, and see what you can pick up from his experience and his knowledge along the way. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure to join that Golf Science Lab Insider Group totally free. Get all the updates and whatnot. Head over to golfsciencelab.com slash insider. This episode was hosted and written by me, Cordy Walker. You can follow me on Twitter at Cordy Walker. It was edited, mixed, and produced by Just Hit Publish Productions.